Hello and welcome to the third edition of Another Brick in the Wall, the monthly podcast on radio and camera that deals with architecture, construction and materials. My name is Pedro Clark and for this month's edition, we have something a little bit different for you. Today we'll be looking at an often overlooked material, but one which has been present in buildings and construction ever since the beginning of time, energy. To do so, I have the pleasure to have as my guest, Dr. Barnabas Calder, an architectural historian and senior lecturer at the University of Liverpool, who will be talking to us about his latest book, Architecture from Prehistory to Climate Emergency. Hiya, thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm an architectural historian. Uh, my specialism for a long time has been British architecture since the Second World War, particularly brutalism. And uh, a few years ago, about 2015, I started work on a big uh, broad history of architecture as an introduction to the field of architecture and uh, it took me in the direction of wondering about whether today's great problem of energy use in architecture was something that was an entirely new problem or whether energy in architecture had been an important story at earlier stages and I'm now essentially an energy historian of architecture. I can't see the world through anything other than the lens of human history of energy use is such an important central consideration of all human history. It's interesting because until your books come out, there is, there's a couple of influential books like The Well-Tempered Environment. Or since that book, there hasn't been much debate about energy use as a building material. And it's actually quite obvious once you look at it. So how has this evaded us for so long? It's a very, very good question. There have been architectural historians whose work I found enormously interesting and valuable because it does talk about this, who hadn't realised it talked about this. It said very charmingly when I pointed it out to them that that's something they hadn't spotted but now find really interesting and they've been now starting to build into their own thinking. Um, I think in some ways my generation, the generations of everybody above about 30, have come to the importance of energy use relatively late in our mental formation, that we grew up in conditions of such unquestioned energy wealth that we are like uh, fishes trying to understand the water. We just swim in a constant pool of enormous fossil fuel energy wealth that makes us not really understand how exceptional that is in any instinctive way. I think people in their 20s have a much better sense of this because they grew up with an awareness of climate emergency developing and the importance of energy use for it. Uh, but in the generations above, we just grew up assuming that everything would get faster and more powerful every, de every decade and that most things would become obsolete before they, be before they became uh, uh, worn out and that uh, it's perfectly normal to experience a kind of constant increase in the energy services available to us and that is not a normal historical condition and it's one which uh, which I think blinds us to it to the point where I found on a major London Museum's website a write-up of a mosque lamp that talked about how it's life from about the 1400s I think Cairo uh, which talked about how the uh, amount of light it produced wasn't very great um, and was more symbolic than practical. Well, it's not true. It was the only lighting in the mosque. <laughs> Therefore, it may not be very bright compared with today's flood lighting, but 
a curator of mosque lamps should be able to think their way into the fact that there wasn't floodlighting. We can't do it. We see that the past through our own brightly lit modern version of it. We don't manage to imagine our way into the levels of cold in cold countries, the levels of uh, of dark in all countries. Prince of Wales, the heir to the British throne, was successfully mugged within a couple of hundred meters of a palace in the very early 1800s because it was so dark that you couldn't even keep the royal family safe if they went out at night. And that within decades had changed because of gaslighting. We just now can't think our way back into nights so dark that that kind of thing was unstoppable, even with the might of the royal family behind it. It's quite impressive because I think we're all so used to having the comforts that we have today that we can't imagine. Uh, and I've had this debate many times, even uh, as an architectural student, later as a young practitioner in other practices, when I was discussing uh, comfort. And a lot of people think, or always used to tell me, we need to insulate buildings more and more. And I said, well, we do, but we also can just put on a couple of jumpers when it's cold. And I was laughed at the time. And then I, I heard some of your interviews in the past and I kind of felt a little bit reassured by that. Yeah, I think the current attitude to uh, comfort conditions is both the narrowest there has ever been in human history. We have the highest expectations of our buildings and surroundings in terms of the range of temperatures that we will experience internal, inside a building. So uh, in warm places, we air conditioned incredibly intensively to the point where in the US, uh, in hot parts of the US in summer, you need to put on a jacket to go into the building and then take it back off again to go out of the building when you're staying in a conference hotel, say, because they are air conditioned to the point where it's uncomfortably cold indoors, which is deranged. And we do this the same in winter in colder places where we overheat the interiors to the point where the contrast with the exterior becomes more and more unpleasant. I think that's a, a habit that it's easy to slip into and relatively demanding to train yourself out of, but totally crucial to train ourselves out of it because the actual threshold for health is 18 degrees. You don't want to be significantly below 18 degrees uh, because it starts to have effects on lung strain and so on. But most of us are spending our winters in cold countries considerably above 18 degrees by heating the air and the walls of leaky and ill-insulated buildings. That is insane, quite where we now realise the harm that the fossil fuels that are providing that warmth are doing. So in the book, I, I look at the question of this kind of rising expectation. And I think it is deliberate. You can deliberately reverse it, particularly when you're young, when you're actually... Uh, if your health, if you're lucky with your health, you can be very hardy indeed. You can keep your living conditions really quite cold. I experimentally turned my heating off for a few winters living in Glasgow, and it got down to eight degrees in my bedroom. It was cold. It was a bit uncomfortable. I had four duvets. I slept under those, and therefore there was this lovely moment when the warmth began to build up after I went to bed. And there was a disagreeable moment in the morning to when I got up into this freezing environment with the ice inside the windows. <laughs> but it, it, I, it, didn't, it genuinely didn't do me any harm. Yeah, you're talking about Glasgow, but actually, if we consider Lisbon here, and our building stock is, is very interesting because a lot of the building stock of, of Lisbon dates from the 18th century. There's very few buildings or because of the earthquake that predate that. 
And then we have the building stock of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and all of them are very badly insulated. And although we have a relatively mild climate, even in the winter, we can have 18 degrees during the day quite comfortably. At night, the temperatures drop to around 10 degrees. And for the vast majority of people, that's very uncomfortable. However, the majority of houses actually doesn't have any central heating and didn't have until very recently any double glazing. So the Lisbon population is used to the fact that if it's cold, you open the windows to let the heat in from the outside. And this is almost counterintuitive to a lot of people that come from overseas and think that oh, these houses are freezing. They are. But people here have gotten used to it or until recently, before air conditioning became the, the norm. And in fact, we live in a moment where it's in order to get your energy certificate and your energy rating of your apartment from, uh, let's say, a B to an A or an A plus certificate, the government incentivizes you to install air conditioning, which is almost insane. But uh, that is, in fact, one of the ways to do it. That's a horrifying misinterpretation of something. I can't begin to understand how you could possibly argue in favor of adding air conditioning in any circumstances where it is crucial to health. There are countries where, um, and this may become an increasingly widespread phenomenon around the earth as uh, climate change intensifies, but uh, if levels of humidity and heat are so high that they're significantly detrimental to health. There are circumstances in which you do need uh, limited use of air conditioning uh, for health purposes. And that's the circumstances that air conditioning should be reserved for. The idea of making it, uh, of incentivizing its installation where in a, in a climate that is blissfully well-designed for humans as that of Portugal is, is very distressing. I'm really, really upset to hear it. But let me try and rein this back because we're sort of going a little bit towards the energy use as opposed to the energy use to build the buildings. So how did you come up with the idea for this book? And tell me a little about the different eras in terms of energy and construction that your book goes through. I came up with the idea because I was asked to write a introductory book that people might want to read on architecture if they were a non-architect but wondering about it or just someone with a general curiosity about the world and in order to write something that wasn't just a kind of banal restatement of things I was trying to work out what the important issues were currently facing architecture so much the dominant one that is special to our period is the avoidance of climate catastrophe and that is overwhelmingly a problem of energy use. 80% of um, greenhouse gas emissions are from burning fossil fuels for energy use worldwide. So that got me thinking about whether the energy of present day buildings uh, could, the ways we discuss energy in present day buildings could be carried back into earlier periods. So I did a kind of very, very rough back of the envelope calculation of the energy levels involved in building the Great Pyramid of Khufu, the largest of the Giza pyramids in Egypt. Uh, and I found that if you multiply the number of days of human labor that are estimated to have gone into it by reputable archaeologists, and there's some variation in the estimates, but in terms of orders of magnitude, uh, you can get uh, an adequate sense of it. And I worked out the amount of energy that that amount of human labor equated to and then compared it to some contemporary things. And I found that 
the entire energy investment of building a pyramid of over 5 million tons of stone, which was uh, 10 to 20 years of 10 to 20,000 people working every day, doing a full hard day's labor, shifting these stones up into place. Uh, that enormous amount of human labor only equated to the amount of energy that seven contemporary Americans will use in their lifetime blew me away as a, as a statistic. This idea that our current energy wealth is such that a large-ish family in the US today, as an average family, has the same power available to them as the most powerful human being on Earth 4,500 years ago. I couldn't unthink <laughs> the extraordinariness of that. So I started reading energy history, which is a kind of branch of economic history that's doing some phenomenally interesting things about understanding the availability and economic effects of energy systems throughout human history. And it just astonished me how important this was for understanding our past and our present. And so I've uh, reorientated my entire <laughs> research career around it because it's so much more important and interesting than anything else I've, I've ever been involved with. It's really changes your whole worldview when you start to understand how odd our current energy use is. So the book, in order to get this story across, you don't do it like most contemporary academic history in periods of sort of 10 years in one city or 20 years of one person's career or that kind of very narrow, detailed span. The way to make this story clear is to look at the very long, periods of history through which enormous transitions occur. So the book starts with a small amount of uh, hunter-gatherer architecture from before the invention of farming and looks at the ways in which hunter-gatherer architecture responds to their energy system, which involves opportunistic energy harvest of resources that are already available in the area they forage or hunt in. And the architecture is very, very clearly a byproduct of either the hunting or the other activities that is only what is needed to make their way of life achievable. So some hunter-gatherer groups hardly built at all or didn't build at all if they lived somewhere where the temperatures didn't demand it. Others built relatively sturdily if they weren't moving around very much, uh, but most did move around and therefore built quite lightly and quite quickly so as not to spend enormous amounts of time on a construction project that will only be used briefly and then abandoned. The group which I start with was a group of mammoth hunters who therefore were pursuing these enormous sources of fat, protein, right into cold, cold terrain, and therefore had to have weatherproof places to live. So they built them out of mammoth bones and reindeer hides, which were the byproducts of their energy structures. They burnt mammoth bones to keep themselves warm and to cook their food. And that's the earliest building we know of mammoth bone huts of 14,000 years ago in the southern Ukraine, the earliest well-documented uh, excavated building. And right from those hunter-gatherer origins, our architecture is an expression of our energy systems. Theirs are incredibly clearly an expression of mammoth huntingness as a characteristic of their group. And the story remains the case. We are just as clearly fossil fuel humans as they were mammoth hunting humans. The invention of farming produces large 
groups of population living close together with some of them not having to farm all day or hunt all day or gather all day in order to have enough to eat. And therefore, these new specialist populations that come with farming, including always in fertile farming societies, a steep social hierarchy with a small group at the top who command what gets built and an enormous number of farmers supporting them. And that produces all the architectural variety of the following millennia from about 12,000 years ago through to the 19th century in many parts of the world. Those social structures, the first half of the book looks at a number of cases of ways in which that plays out according to local energy systems. So um, Song Dynasty, China, uh, where there's an extraordinary energy boom because of the change in rice growing that doubles their crop. And suddenly they have the largest cities the world's ever seen and an extraordinary architectural explosion. Uh, ancient Rome, ancient Athens and its rivalry with ancient Persia based on two different energy systems, which provoked, provoked a kind of very different sense of identity between the two uh, great neighboring groups. And then the second half of the book looks at a much shorter period, but much more fast-changing period since about 1600, when in London first and then spreading around the world over the centuries since, coal began to be exploited on a very large scale and the lightning speed of change that you get with each new fossil fuel and its arrival in each part of the world is staggering and essentially the book's argument is that modernity as we understand it is actually fossil fuel civilization and that moving away from fossil fuels is a very very big civilizational challenge as well as all sorts of small-scale technical challenges. We've actually had the opportunity to build a house that uh, aims to be totally self-sufficient. It's built out in, in the countryside in, in Portugal. Because of its location, it actually there was no power lines there at the time, no water sources. The house actually produces enough energy throughout the summer and the whole of the spring period to cover 80% of the use of an American. It would probably cover more than 150% of, of a non-American user. In order to get that, which is essentially a mini plant built on it, the house is designed to have a battery pack that lasts for about three days. So we had to install a main power line to feed any surplus energy back into the grid. And the moment we do that, we're only allowed to sell back to the grid as much as we consume off the grid, which is, again, very ironic. The investment of getting the power line to come across is not really worth it. But uh, we hope that throughout time, this will change. And for you, you, you place this moment of, of significant change in architecture with the Industrial Revolution. And then it's become faster and faster, as you say. And, and then modernism, with and everyone's aspirations to getting you know, a, a house that stays at around 20 degrees year round, we have this massive explosion of, of energy consumption. But I'd ask you also to touch upon the energy that's used today to make materials such as concrete or steel or wood, because zero carbon won't arrive overnight in the majority of buildings or all geographic locations at the same time. So how can we help us architects and young architects that are starting to think about how they want to do their buildings, what materials they should be considering and doing? Because the vast majority of architecture that's told in architecture school these days is still based on modernism and is still based on concrete. Yeah, well, that's one thing that uh, architecture students can do. They can complain about it. 
that they can give their staff hell if they carry on pushing them towards concrete. They can ask for proper teaching on uh, how to use stone. They can ask for, um, you know, the, the engineers are starting to exist who are happy to work with stone as a serious structural material, not as some kind of pretty cladding. Uh, and the, uh, the engineering of timber is very, very well understood now. Uh, and there's absolutely no excuse for architecture schools still to be pushing people towards concrete. Uh, and it's still extremely widespread, as you say, and it's more to do with the, uh, with the pattern that change moves at the speed of fashion rather than at the speed of, and at the speed of people leaving and people arriving rather than at the speed it needs to move at. But I would challenge your sense that, um, that this is going to take a long time. It may be going to take a long time, but if so, we're going to have catastrophic climate change. We can't afford for it to take a long time. And therefore the challenge becomes not only one of individual action, both as private individuals and as architects, but uh, one of um, changing public opinion, changing voting patterns, challenging terrible legislation, making a fuss. In the UK, there's a wonderful organization called Architects Climate Action Network, ACAN, uh, which is a group of mostly um, kind of, I would characterize them as kind of typically mid-career architects who are working in, uh, in many cases, in larger commercial practices, which are doing the wrong thing, essentially, environmentally speaking, because everyone is. Uh, and uh, the young, younger architects know that it's a problem, and they spend their evenings and weekends doing really first-rate research on uh, what they should be doing and what the government should be mandating and what, um, what regulations should change to and identifying and communicating problems as clearly as possible. And they are having a, an effect. We just uh, yesterday had an announcement um, from a major um, committee, government committee here, that they are recommending two of the things that the Architects Climate Action Network have been pushing for some time now, exactly in the, in the Architect Climate Action Network terms you know that it, they, it makes a difference you can make a difference and you make a much bigger difference by uh, lobbying than you do by um, cutting a few uh, a couple of tons of carbon out of one project that you're yourself building by substituting one concrete mix for another uh, and if we don't change the regulations then individual actions of individual well-motivated architects and clients are really good and everyone should be pushing that but they're not going to save us they're just going to mean that some people go into the hell of the next uh, century uh, with less blood on their hands than others but that's not what we want we want to solve the actual problem and to solve the problem we have to take government action if you think about past changes in architecture most of the ones we all think about and discuss are ones of fashion and economics uh, and are gradual over a period of decades. But there are examples of regulation being brought in, which just changes the entire landscape overnight. So up until the 1660 fire of London, London was starting to have some brick buildings in it because um, coal was available and that made it cheap enough to fire the local good quality clay that London happens to be built on uh, into viable bricks that would survive the wet climate. 
but it was a, a kind of a trendy new material rather than a serious widespread adoption. Uh, and most of the city continued to be a patchwork of bits and bobs of stone for important buildings, but for most buildings, they were timber and thatch and, uh, and animal dung walls and all the usual kind of uh, shoddy plant-based uh, materials of the European Middle Ages in areas without good stone. And after that enormous fire in 1666, the, uh, the rules were simply changed. And they said, you cannot now build in flammable materials. You have to have a brick party wall between each pair of houses and a brick front wall. The, the streets have to be a given width, which is far enough for fire not to jump from one set of windows to the windows opposite. Uh, and you have to uh, have the following proper chimney designs and so on. And immediately, the brick industry grew up to deal with that. Very, very large, very fast, because that's what economics will see to. Uh, the um, uh, and London had no more really big-scale domestic fires until the deregulations of the 21st century, which uh, led to the Grenfell Tower catastrophe, uh, which, again, uh, is something which is simply preventable by good regulations, well-enforced. And if, you, if we don't now, in the next months, let alone years, pull together in all of the, the, the uh, energy-rich countries of the earth, regulations that stop us from casually pulling down viable buildings that are already there and from replacing them with um, concrete and steel buildings that have a disastrous carbon footprint that we tell ridiculous lies about in the, the way that we discuss them, uh, particularly you know, architects, the construction industry's marketing campaigns talk about uh, the usefulness of the um, thermal mass of enormous concrete structures. It's grotesque. You know, they'll never pay it off, uh, and certainly not before the sea levels have risen and uh, the disasters of climate emergency have really got going. So uh, in answer to what individual architects can do, the biggest thing you could do is spread awareness and campaign and lobby government about it. And after that, you can then try and make your own practice as undamaging as possible. And that means putting every pressure available on never again to use concrete. And it's a really difficult material to move away from because it's the norm in the construction industry. It's the norm for engineers. And it's a wonderful material in every respect other than that it's going to kill us all. In every other way, it's really good. My previous book was called... Um, raw concrete the beauty of brutalism <laughs> i'm not anti-concrete in any other terms except that it's poisonous to the to the to the survival of humanity For us here in portugal there's an even more difficult challenge because a lot of our building regulations and a lot of the robustness we end up seeing in our structures comes from another disaster which was the 1755 earthquake and off the back of that, there's been a fear of an earthquake, which is yet to come. We're expecting another major earthquake any moment. And therefore, everything has to be seismic proof. And there, the original response to that was a, a timber and stone hybrid structure, which was the Pomboline cage. Uh, I've written about it, and it's, it's interesting how it works. But ever since, with the increase of the, the risk factors and with the euro codes coming into force, 
a lot of this knowledge disappeared and engineers now are basically virtually trained to do the seismic resistance, the vast majority of them, in concrete. So it's very, very hard to get alternative structures here in Portugal. We can do things for one, two-story buildings easily in light steel. That's now started appearing. We see as well timber coming in, and there's an interesting EU-funded project which is built in wood. I don't know if you've heard about it, but there's a multi-million euro research project that I interviewed a couple of episodes ago. But it's essentially a paradigm shift. We need to, to get people to understand that concrete is less and less viable. But when you try, and, and we've tried as architects to push that message, and your clients say, no, no, we want our buildings built out of concrete. That's what we're used to. You, you have to work at that level, and, and that will always be difficult, I think. Since, as I said, it, it won't happen overnight, uh, and so far we don't have a magical solution yet. Uh, how do the different materials compare in terms of energy use, concrete, steel, and wood, for example, and stone for that matter? Concrete is terrible, partly because uh, of the quantity you use it in when you use it. Uh, partly because of the cement, uh, energy use is only half the problem of cement production, the other half is the carbon dioxide emitted by cement production is from the chemical reaction that makes it. Uh, so um, uh, uh, 4%, I think, of the world's carbon dioxide greenhouse gas emissions are off gassing carbon dioxide emerging from cement production. Uh, and the third thing that's catastrophic about concrete is that it's so inflexible and unrecyclable. Uh, it's not that you can't use it for something once you've demolished it. It's just that you can only use it as a really low-quality material that you grind up with yet more energy consumption, truck around the place with yet more energy consumption, use as ballast to fill in holes, essentially. Um, so when people say they're managing to recycle X percent of, of a demolished building, some of it's being downcycled so far that, it, that the notion of it being recycled is almost absurd. Uh, steel... In, when used in concrete is, I think, hard to recycle as well. Steel used structurally is terrible in terms of its embodied carbon, very, very energy intense material. And current steel production techniques for virgin steel um, involve direct addition of extensive um, coal because that's part of the chemical requirements for it. And therefore you can't substitute that for electricity, even in an imaginary world where we've got such a big renewable supply that we can carry on with our energy intense industries and just substitute renewable electricity, which is not the case. It's still um, um, materials like steel and cement are overwhelmingly produced, I mean, almost entirely produced using fossil fuel energy. So steel is very problematic but uh, it's much more recyclable. And actually, if you detail it right, it can even be fully reusable. And therefore, um, the, the difference between a recycling process that involves shipping something around the world uh, and applying very intense heat to it again to bring it back into use and something which can be unbolted from one location and bolted back into place uh, a mile away couple of kilometers away is enormous and so steel has the advantage that at least in theory the latter is possible in the current state of regulation i think i don't know how much anyone would dare do it uh, but it's at least theoretically possible so there 
the possibility exists of a more sustainable kind of Lego kit attitude to steel. And steel can also be a valuable uh, small component of projects that are mostly made of something else. So reinforcing a timber structure or a stone structure with small amounts of steel can potentially be quite a good combination of responses. Um, wood obviously has the advantage that it sequesters energy, uh, carbon. It takes carbon out of the atmosphere and turns it into a building component. It does so extremely slowly, though, and the land use implications are really challenging. So the idea that we can design an exclusively timber architecture and carry on demolishing and constructing at the speed we're used to is a pipe dream. It's not real. It's, it's, a, it's a, 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 an optimistic fantasy because uh, the quantity of materials we currently use, apparently about half of or over half of all materials harvested and mined go into um, buildings. And uh, we can't grow enough timber to substitute the amount of concrete and steel that we're currently putting into buildings um, without taking away an amount of our land that's unrealistic in a way that would also be the way we mostly grow our timber at the moment is monocultural in a way that's terrible for biodiversity uh, and uh, increases things like uh, flooding and uh, soil loss because of just endless conifer forests, which aren't a, good, aren't a good landscape in any way other than that they sequester a bit of carbon. So they worsen the biodiversity crisis, even as they slightly fractionally slow down that aspect of the damage we're doing in terms of the, uh, of the uh, carbon use. So, um, the, uh, so don't use concrete at all. Uh, use steel as lightly as possible as a reinforcement. Wood is genuinely uh, good, but you can't, we can't build as much as we in the habit of doing even in wood. And uh, stone is in some ways one of the great hopes for me of, um, of the coming decades of architecture in the sense that it's very abundant, enormous amounts of it around, and a relatively small quarry can produce a very large cubic volume of it quite easily uh, and the uh, the great things about it are that it gets away from the flammability and the springiness of timber-based construction both of which are problematic for some building types although fine for things like uh, single uh, conventional housing sorts of structures uh, not in the sense of conventional structure but in the sense of not multi-story uh, but stone, uh, there have been some really exciting experiments in France and in England with stone as a structural material once again. And with contemporary scanning techniques and uh, very sophisticated computer-based uh, engineering, there's no reason why we can't start doing really exciting things in stone. The very good... Um, engineer Steve Webb, who might make a really good interviewee for you at some stage, if he has the time and you uh, contact him, uh, has said that um, it calculates that stone is 20 times uh, better in terms of strength to carbon ratio. And we interviewed in, in the last episode uh, from the University of Malta, Irina, who has a PhD on, on stereotomy and the use of stone. And 
it, it's very interesting, all the work that's been done in Malta is basically a country built out of stone. And for them, they're very worried about the use of stone because their quarries locally are running out of stone. So even stone, although promising in, in some ways, has its limitations. Uh, I know it, it's unpopular to say as architects that we just have to advocate not to build as much and, and maybe to refurbish as much of the existing building stock that we have because that carbon's already embodied and, and there. We can't put it back. So your book in some ways ends up being quite uh, dispiriting for, for a lot of the work that's been done before. Or what's the hope? How do you see things moving forwards? I don't, I don't agree at all. I think the, um, it's, a, it's a misconception for architects to feel that uh, retrofit is a bad thing for them. Uh, in, in purely economic terms, the way that uh, modernism has ended up playing out is um, increasing systematization, the sort which de-skills and uh, removes designers from the process. So an awful lot of today's building stock that's going up now is a series of kits that are uh, designed by um, uh, essentially manufacturing designers and engineers and implemented with relatively little design effort uh, by um, very small design teams, sometimes entirely within the construction team, and then implemented on site in this very um, de-skilled and systematized way, which was always the dream of modernism to turn architecture into something like a, uh, or one of the dreams of modernism, to turn architecture into something like the Henry Ford car plants that you could just uh, you know, you can have it in any colour as long as it's black, but it will be very cheap. Uh, and that was the case with, um, uh, that was the, the dream of a lot of modernist uh, architectural thinking. And it's become a reality uh, where the building sites of uh, today's cities are places of very little craft and enormous amounts of mechanisation and uh, very little design input. And that is not in architects' interest at all, whereas retrofit, you cannot take that kind of approach. You can't systematize retrofit. It is an extremely skilled and building-specific thing where each individual project requires serious design input, serious um, uh, sensibility to the existing building of a sort that's precisely what architects bring most valuably to the project. Uh, a kind of cumulative expertise built up over a career of multiple retrofit projects that makes you just do it better and better and better, and peer learning between other retrofit projects in the same area. It promises a much greater regionality because retrofit works with existing buildings that are more varied than the kit-built stuff that's rolled out very similarly all over the world. And the materials that will be most sustainable in each location will be different as well. And climate response will be very different. So rather than the HVAC engineers just specifying different machinery into the plant room that you've shoved on the, on the drawing, uh, the, uh, the response to climate will again generate very, very different architecture in each region, all of which is enormously exciting to architects or should be. And these are, these are huge opportunities for revolutionary design development. I've, I've, I've said once or twice that I think at the moment, sustain, truly sustainable architecture, meaning zero carbon architecture, is hardly existent at all. And we are in terms of, if you think of zero carbon architecture as a movement, the way that modernism can be seen in some ways as a movement, we're currently 
sometime in uh, the uh, late 19th century or before in terms of our development of, uh, of zero carbon architecture as an analogy with modernism. It's nothing is much is yet there that could possibly be considered as a significant contribution <laughs> to zero carbon architecture. And the opportunities are all there for helping to for, for people to have the incredibly exciting creative challenge of working out what zero carbon buildings look like in each place and in each uh, specific set of local climate and material conditions, uh, which is, I think, utterly thrilling. And working with individual existing buildings where some of them are buildings that have no merits as it stands or very limited merits as it stands other than embodied carbon and viability of structure and are an amazing canvas on which to play. And others have wonderful qualities that you can work with and accentuate um, and develop. Uh, and the, the, the richness of creative opportunity and of design potential in this is enormous. Only the fact that we've been training people in architecture schools for, well, for as long as architecture schools have existed, we've trained people to uh, start with virgin sites and produce some magnificent vision of their own uh, uh, imagining. But that's always been a minority activity, actually, in, in what people did once they emerged into, the, into, the, uh, into practice. And architecture schools, collectively and individually, we need to get much better at teaching retrofit, and engaging people with retrofit, and helping people to see how exciting it could be to take an existing building and uh, it, the real people who use it and make the building as good as it can possibly be aesthetically and functionally and uh, environmentally. That's not boring at all. Not boring, not depressing. It's wonderful. I didn't mean to say boring or depressing in that way. I meant to say um, some of the students will almost be shocked if they, if they hear what we're saying at the moment because what they've been taught and what they've aspired to and what they see in the Arc Daily websites and the designs of this world is not the reality of, of what will be sustainable, not just in architecture, but for actually our world. There is a, a serious paradigm shift. And for a lot of people, sustainability has meant Briam, lead, passive house. And all these are in many ways, and I, I know I'll get a lot of criticism for saying this, tick boxing exercises where sometimes the criteria might not actually apply to reality. I think there is a challenge here, and I don't see exactly how we'll get to it. I've heard you uh, say before that there's an opportunity for the Le Corbusier of sustainability to emerge, and it's a really interesting challenge to have someone come up with a set of aesthetics that will then drive the movement, because unfortunately architecture has always been driven first by aesthetics and secondary by material and technology. Um, maybe there's some exception to that in Gothic, but it's, it's always been that way. How can you, is there anything you can point us to or anything your book brings out that, uh, that we can leave as a, as a thought and a way forwards for people? Uh, I think the, the thing that's wonderful about modernism, that modernism did fantastically well, was to pull apart briefs and look at a changed set of conditions and design an architecture that responded to. So in technical terms, most of the things that uh, characterized modernist buildings were being done in the 19th century in historicist buildings in uh, the 
industrial cities of the world. Uh, so uh, things like the House of Parliament in London had a very elaborate system of uh, mechanical ventilation uh, and uh, artificial lighting and other services that you would associate with modernism, but they were all there in mid-19th century Britain uh, in a Gothic building with a classical plan um, because the architectural style hadn't yet uh, been completely reconceived to suit the new energy technologies. And we're starting perhaps to be at the beginning of that condition at the moment in architecture that we're starting to think, well, architecture might need to look different as well as perform differently. But an awful lot of stuff is at the moment still a kind of um, late modernism uh, of one sort or another that, um, that has a few solar panels on the roof or a bit of something else that's tweaked about it. And it's not yet derived from the new conditions. And that opportunity to do what Le Corbusier did and really look hard at the new conditions. And when you look at something like um, Towards an Architecture, uh, he, in, that, um, in the chapter Architectural Revolution, there's a series of machines illustrated in it. And I suddenly noticed, rereading it for this book, that almost all those machines, they're energy-related. They're uh, Bugatti engines uh, and uh, a coal yard and, a, uh, and two electricity-generating fans. And the series of, uh, of energy revolutions that he's looking at and understanding that lead him to realize that the city is going to change very fundamentally and that architecture is going to change too. And at the moment, we're still looking at all these problems from the point of view of a modernist understanding of the world that the solution is almost always to do something that involves machinery and concrete. Uh, and actually, the level of rethinking required is enormous. There are a few projects starting to pop up around the place that I think are starting to make really interesting contributions um, to the development both of uh, the thinking of, of these things and sometimes too to the aesthetic. One of the ones that is most exciting on the thinking for me is the Zero Arctic project uh, in Finland of trying to design uh, buildings for a very cold climate that uh, responds to not just the kind of uh, uh, technologized ways of dealing with a, a contrast in temperature between inside and out, but also uh, long-standing ways uh, in the Sami reindeer herding people's uh, architecture that, for example, um, uh, they've got this wonderful concept of fault tolerance, which is so missing from most of the system building uh, that increases insulation at the moment, where you give something a 60-year design life or less, and you design a series of components that can be quickly installed by not particularly skilled construction workers. Uh, you build a, a structural framework and you cover it in a kind of plastic lasagna of insulation and waterproofing and rain screen cladding. And that, together, each of those uh, performs its very specific function within the structure. And if any of them fails, then the aim of the others is not to be the one that gets sued for the failure of the building project as a whole, uh, not to be resilient and to cope with one of them failing. And it, in 
traditional architectures, the tendency is that if something goes a bit wrong, you can patch it back up again and you don't lose the entire building or have to strip it back to its uh, structure and start again with the entire cladding. And that idea of fault tolerance of coping with um, uh, the, the, the natural glitches that come up from time to time by something other than suing someone uh, is, uh, is crucial, clearly, if we're going to have buildings that will last a long time and be uh, workable with over a long period, including potentially periods of economic trouble where we don't have the kind of huge economy and huge construction sector we do at the moment to sweep in and change it all again. Uh, and the other, the other example that always uh, cheers me up when looking at the current situation is the Cork House in Eton uh, by uh, Matthew Barnett-Howland and Dido Milne and others, uh, which is a house built of structural expanded cork uh, where the level of sustainable thinking goes through the entire life of the building. So it goes from being carbon negative to start with, that the materials sequester more carbon construction costs, uh, to being very well insulated uh, to have a good uh, operational carbon footprint that's just a wood stove to heat. Uh, and um, uh, to be at the end of its life, dismantleable, as many parts as possible, reusable just as they are, rather than requiring downcycling with intensive extra energy inputs. So things like they don't glue anything because glues are really hard to, to, to take off again. Um, they damage the materials that are glued together and uh, the glue itself interrupts any recycling process. So instead of gluing, gluing the airtightness foam into the walls. They just pinch it between the blocks of expanded cork, which are cut very, very precisely with laser cutters to tolerance, uh, to a very tight tolerance. That means that when you then squeeze these pieces of foam in between, it achieves a very high standard of air tightness without requiring uh, things that would make it uh, last less well. And rather than put fireproofing on the cork, they uh, install the sprinkler system which therefore is all either reusable pipes or recyclable pipes. Um, and rather than paint their or coat any of their woodwork, they just kept it all as woodwork. And they've screwed it into place rather than nailing or gluing it, because that way you can take it all apart undamagingly. So the whole building could re-disappear from its site again, leaving only a bit where there wasn't grass and uh, in the beautiful garden it's built in. And, um, and all of the components could go on and have a subsequent life. And that kind of thinking is really exciting, I think. And the execution of it is not merely um, clever. It's also beautiful. The house feels like some kind of timeless, uh, some somewhat kind of primitivist domestic dream of these materials used in this very clear, straightforward way. It has the best qualities of brutalism about it, but in a phenomenally sustainable way. Uh, where the materials are what they look like and do what they do and totally legible how the whole building works in a way that's very unusual with sustainable architecture where we tend to have these kind of multiple layers of, uh, of um, uh, cheap, crappy-looking materials <laughs> stuck together into this kind of ugly, uh, completed surface. And that's what mostly seems to count as sustainable at the moment. Um, 
And the courthouse, to me, is a very early draft of the kind of thinking and the kind of aesthetics that become possible if you really start from the principles and allow the architecture to emerge from what you discover the principles need to be, rather than trying to work out how to do the stuff you've always wanted to do that basically modernism uh, in a way that's less damaging. So starting again from scratch with real enthusiasm and energy rather than a kind of defensive sense of, oh, crap, I better take 20% out of the carbon on the LCA so that I don't look too bad, uh, which is much more common as a, as a, as a response of the I think that'll lead me to sort of the, the last question I'm going to ask you, which is once we consider energy as a material, because we are building with it, there's a lot of data that has to be analysed and a lot of number crunching that has to be done to analyse whether a particular material uses more or less of it and then releases more or less carbon. Uh, in your research, how sort of accurate were you or how were you able to get to that data and how viable is it? And then architects who are not trained in using that level of you know, science to, to put together buildings, how do you think we can deal with it? Uh, answering the second of those first, I guess, uh, architects uh, are, of all professions I've ever come into contact with, the most skilled in dealing with multiple competing skill sets. It's something that is one of the great challenges of, a, of an architecture degree. And in, I, I'm not an architect by training myself, I'm a historian, and I've always admired uh, my students more than I can say for their ability to go in the same day from a lecture on uh, Persian architectural history to one on um, cladding materials and, uh, and then on to one on structural loads and then to go into studio and uh, do something very uh, conceptual and artistic all in the same day. You know, it, 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 there is no group of professionals better equipped to tackle yet another complex thing than architects. Uh, and um, there's a lot of help out there and it keeps growing as well. This, this is something that um, a committed body of good people is writing about and offering help with. There are sustainability consultancies springing up who are, the, as usual, the consultancies, everything from uh, kind of uh, people who will help you with the PR side of things through to people who will truly help you to make your architecture profoundly more sustainable. Uh, and um, uh, so there's lots of help available. Obviously, the, uh, the cost of that needs to come from somewhere. Uh, and for me, that's another thing where regulation is required because as soon as that's just part of the cost of construction, then it immediately just disappears into the land price at, at the development level. Uh, any new cost just disappears into the, into the fundamental economics of the building industry. Uh, so um, so uh, we need leg legislation on that and we need clients who want to do the right thing or want to look as though they're doing the right thing to understand that that's part of the right thing and that a really good quality LCA should be part of, uh, of every project always. Um, and in terms of how I dealt with it in the book, uh, I had some uh, parts of the book where there were enormously helpful bits of very, very high quality history pre-existing that helped incalculably. So things like uh, 
an extraordinary kind of reverse quantity surveying job that uh, Professor Janet Delane from Oxford did on the Baths of Caracalla in Rome, where she worked out the percentage of the volume of that central block of the Baths of Caracalla, one of the biggest of the ancient Roman monuments. Uh, she worked out the percentage of each material that went into it, and that, and and how and how far they'd come from the quarry, and how they'd been processed. And it's an astonishing piece of work, and enabled me to be very precise about that project. In other cases, uh, I am openly uh, at a level of precision that is kind of uh, more than and less than, <laughs> without a number attached, because the data simply doesn't exist historically yet. And I'm currently um, starting work with several PhD students and several other collaborators on trying to build up better data for large chunks of the past. Um, I have a PhD student at the moment working on embodied carbon and embodied energy in the 1960s British architecture, for example. Um, but uh, the answer is I'm, I'm someone who ran away from maths as early as I was allowed to at 16 uh, and who... Um, enjoyed the sciences until they started to spoil them with maths because I'm a typical humanities uh, graduate who um, likes words and pictures but not numbers. And I recognize that the challenges of sustainability are numerical challenges and therefore I'm trying to pull myself together and face these things and I'm asking for help from people who are better at it because fundamentally uh, we will not achieve a habitable planet for our children and grandchildren's generations if we don't get this sorted out. And that's worth facing some inconveniences and some less appealing aspects of work uh, because it's really a lot nicer to learn to use complicated data and spreadsheets than it is to live in a world with catastrophic runaway climate change. Thank you. And I think we will end on that note. Thank you once again for joining us. Thanks. I can't wait to get my hands on a copy of the book. And I recommend that everyone that's listening to us also tries to read it, as energy and CO2 are for sure hidden materials that influence all we do. Like you've just told us and like we know, the climate emergency is very real and something that we architects have the duty to act now and do all we can to avoid the most serious consequences. Although a little bit longer and different from our usual content, we thank you for listening and we look forward to having you join us next month. Until then, bye for now.